0: Hey everyone, welcome to tonight's episode of The Entry Level Left. I have with me Nathan, Jared, and tonight we're going to be talking about neoliberalism. Uh, up until this point, we've kind of discussed capitalism in a very broad sense, but no such manifestation of free market capitalism is arguably as important today as the neoliberal project of capitalism. This project, or this, this manifestation of capitalism that we call a project, became prominent in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan uh, in the U.S., with Pinochet in Chile and Margaret Thatcher in the U.K. This phenomena marked sort of a paradigm shift away from Keynesian conceptions of capitalism that advocated for a managed market economy, predominantly private sector, uh, but with an active role for government intervention during things like recessions or depressions. So with that in mind, I want to pose a question to the group How would you compare the neoliberal uh, laissez-faire approach to capitalism with the Keynesian approach to capitalism?
1: I have this quote written down here from Encyclopedia Britannica. I'm just going to read that Just, just so our audience is aware, just a little more background on neoliberalism. So Encyclopedia Britannica describes neoliberalism as, quote, the ideology and policy model that emphasizes the value of free market competition. It is most commonly associated with laissez-faire economics. In particular, neoliberalism is often characterized in terms of its belief in sustained economic growth as the means to achieve human progress. Its confidence in free markets as the most efficient allocation of resources, its emphasis on minimal state intervention in economic and social affairs, and its commitment to the freedom of trade and capital. So I think to the question, it's really just, in the most basic sense, a separation from any government involvement. Uh, in the market the way a Keynesian system would have w- with sort of welfare state capitalism like we talked about in previous episodes. And also, too, one thing I would add to what you've kind of already said is that neoliberalism is a project. You know, you mentioned Chile, uh, Pinochet and Chile. It's global. It's a globalized market force. It kind of toes the entire global market in line or attempts to uh, with this sort of extreme free market ideology
0: that's not limited to single-state capitalist entities. For our listeners that may not be aware, what is the laissez-faire economics or what is the laissez-faire principle?
2: The core belief of it is that the government should have no part in anything that could be a market. So this could be anything from like healthcare to food and um, pretty much any basic need all the way to things like entertainment. The belief is that the best way to encourage growth
0: is to bring in people who have the capitalist mindset. And in French, essentially, laissez-faire is kind of just this idea of hands-off. I think it pretty much exactly means like hands-off economics.
1: If there's a market for it, basically, the private sector should be involved in it, and they can, in theory, you know, self-manage doing the most good that benefits the most people With and the government, when they get involved, they just muddy things up, make things more bureaucratic and limit the greater prosperity that could trickle down to the rest of everyone. And you know? when,
2: when it comes to like the Keynesian approach versus the laissez-faire approach, you can think of neoliberalism as kind of like a return back to that laissez-faire yes, approach. precisely. For pretty much almost, for most of the 20th century, you're seeing more and more kind of social progress, although it is slow. You're seeing things like the New Deal mm-hmm. come out but neoliberalism becomes kind of like the rejection of the New Deal and kind of
0: reverting back to the laissez-faire ideals. Kind of just returning to that hands-off mentality or that hands-off ethic of the of private markets. So going further into this this kind of like ethic that neoliberal, uh, neoliberal politics or the neoliberal project introduces to society and capitalism at large, we have a quote from Marxist geographer and professor David Harvey from his book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, To paraphrase Harvey, he states that neoliberalism is the intensification of the influence and dominance of capital, is the elevation of capitalism as a mode of production into an ethic, a set of political imperatives, and a cultural logic. It is also a project, a project to strengthen, restore, or in some cases constitute anew the power of economic elites that were otherwise kept at bay or displaced under more Keynesian economic systems that allowed for the existence of a stronger labor movement. You don't necessarily need to read David Harvey's book, although it's a a really great uh, resource that we pull a lot of information and critique from. But I think what he's saying is neoliberalism as a project sort of intensifies the characteristics of capitalism, free market capitalism, and privatization and financialization of markets. So the question that I would pose to the group would be, what differentiates typical free market capitalism from neoliberal economic ideology?
1: I think I would honestly just for this one hammer down you know it is largely a global project it's something that it's not to say that capitalism like free market capitalism previously wasn't global. obviously, you could cite imperialism as it being a global project. Um, what I mean by that is the intervention of a capitalist state into a less developed nation with the intent to Grab a hold of its resources and establish new markets in that state. You know, largely referencing imperialism. Um, however, I think that neoliberalism is more of a hyperfinancialization that occurs on a global stage. The increasing wealth in the hands of the few globally, and the increase of global finance, whether it's through the International Monetary Fund, the IMF the World Bank, uh, and various other institutions that really attempt to act as sort of mediators or players on the world stage in in conjunction with uh, major neoliberal nations, such as the United States, the United Kingdom, and so on, and really are at the forefront of debt restructuring efforts. Basically things that I don't think were existing, or at least certainly were not existing to that level under traditional conceptions of free market capitalism that existed, you know as Nathan was mentioning earlier sort of in the emergence of the early 20th century
0: and such. So definitely a takeaway for the listener who may not be very up to date or aware of the neoliberal project. Some things that are exacerbated under uh, neoliberal ideology or would,
1: neoliberal capitalism, especially. Yeah,
0: neoliberal capitalism. Th- some things that are exacerbated under that particular ideological segment of capitalism would be austerity, privatization, and what what else can you guys think of? Well,
1: first, too, and like what we mean by austerity would mean like the we we kind of alluded to it previously, but yeah, austerity is the big one, specifically the. Cutting of public investment, public infrastructure and, you know, financial restructuring in the sense of cutting out minimum wage requirements or lowering minimum wage requirements or allowing them to stagnate. Getting
2: rid of healthcare, Yeah, lowering
1: public investment and housing. Getting rid of education. Right. All with the intent to uh, free up, quote, quotes around that, free up capital for investment, namely private investment, which basically ends up being a massive transfer of wealth that was previously spent on public utilities and things that could be used by the majority of society and are instead that money is transferred to the financial sector or the banking class, the billionaire class, those who are already financially well off in society.
0: So think of it as just like the the intense cutting of social social programs or social welfare programs. And then deregulation, it comes into play there too with just free, freeing up uh, Issues or removing obstacles to investment, privatization, and free trade in that sense. Those are things that are exacerbated under the neoliberal project. It seems like the main goal for
2: any sort of neoliberal state is to increase GDP. So anytime that uh, something is handled by the government, whether it's like education or healthcare or something like that, it's pretty much like a profit loss in terms of GDP. And people look at GDP versus debt, a staple of in terms of how economically sound a country is. And so the further that GDP crashes, because possibly more of their government handles some of the things that would otherwise be included in the GDP, the more that is included under the government umbrella, the less kind of economically sound a country might look, which that's why you might see these like structural adjustment policies, things like cutting welfare, because it makes the uh, the economy look like a market for people to invest in.
0: Yeah, but as we know, that's not always necessarily that strict uh, or or rigid conception of GDP is not always a great indicator of Let's, living standard or, right. or other things that are important for a society.
1: Talking once again, is, or is that what I've kept mentioning with like sort of this global nature of neoliberalism is we just, for instance, mentioned austerity as being a major indicator of neoliberalism being implemented. And once again, neoliberalism takes austerity to a global stage. Uh, when country is suffering, perhaps a debt crisis of some kind, usually um, due to a long-term history with colonialism, or maybe even being like a banana republic of some kind. Essentially, what the IMF and World Bank do on behalf of Western actors, sort of appearing as a you know objective third party is they implement austerity in those countries. Cut your minimum wage, cut your social programs, cut your welfare spending, and free up capital, a.k.a. take money and hand it over to private investment.
0: With that in mind, before we go too much further into like the examples of those type of slash-and-cut policies or austerity worldwide, or even things like deregulation of free trade, what do you guys think are some cultural attitudes or ethics that arise from neoliberal economic policy?
1: You know, basically this idea that if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. You know, it has nothing to do with any sort of economic restructuring processes, certainly no austerity processes that have led you to being in the financial situation that you're in. So therefore, it reproduces a a cultural and ethical attitude or a cultural narrative rather that if you're poor, it's because you're either not doing enough or you're just lazy And that sort of disciplines, I think, the broader workforce as a whole, because on behalf of the capitalist class, uh, specifically the neoliberal capitalist class, and it kind of reproduces this logic that other people in society, other citizens, they are the problem. They are not working hard enough. Or I'm working hard and picking up for their slack, and therefore I'm working harder for less pay. Uh, It just kind of reproduces this whole narrative that. Ultimately, plays into the hands once again of those who already have the large sum of wealth in society from these sorts of neoliberal um, policies and and uh, cultural attitudes that
0: are reproduced. Yeah, so it like aids the atomization of the workforce. Yeah, and kind of gets everybody to think in terms of individual moral critiques, like because you're doing poorly or because you're homeless, that has absolutely nothing to do with you know maybe some structural disadvantages maybe your parents died when you were 17 and you've been an orphan or you know maybe you were imprisoned and you're now out on the streets without a job you know these are these are the type of things that you know are structural disadvantages that you know maybe uh, the moralism of neoliberal politics or economic ideologies can sort of use to discipline somebody to Not think about why it's it's a structural problem, but get them to look at it as like an individual moral failing, which, of course, we know is not really the case in most circumstances. Like in many cases, it's not your fault that you're homeless, you know, and in a lot of cases, like homeless people aren't these lazy people that don't want to work or don't want to integrate into society. And a lot of this is just is just very like mythological purported by neoliberal economic policy.
1: It's kind of like GDP. It's like, you know, it doesn't take in all everything that it should. It just looks at things at a face value. And I think that's what neoliberalism attempts to do. Because if you do that, it makes a large portion of society a lot easier to exploit and a lot easier to shift blame onto as opposed to the neoliberal system, ultimately the capitalist system itself, as having reproduced those inequalities.
2: But you can also kind of see this on like a national scale too, I know that individualism is one of like the, the core principles of neoliberalism, but also you can kind of see people blame countries for their predicaments as well, even if they were uh, subject to kind of like a colonial rule less than 100 years ago or 150 years ago, or even if they'd done things like had a social welfare program that they probably couldn't have afforded. Like in the case, for example, of, of Greece is probably one of the most modern countries that is having a debt crisis right now. So you can actually, you'll, you'll see people even online probably we'll talk about how these countries are responsible for their problems on their own. But really, we should take a step back and kind of look at what other countries or the system as a whole have kind of imposed on those individual
1: countries. Well, it's like with Greece, like you just said, too, they were pretty much painted as the reason they have a debt crisis is because they're so lazy and they take too many vacations.
0: Yeah, they
2: have siestas.
0: <laughs> yeah. So to to highlight this idea of like almost like hyper individualism, I want to read a sort of like a paraphrase, a quote from Margaret Thatcher, who is known to be the biggest proponent of of neoliberal uh, politics or neoliberal capitalism in the UK. And she stated that there's no such thing as society. There are only individual men, women, and there are families. So from that, that premise there, it kind of lets you see that the neoliberal project doesn't view society at large as like a as like a structure it sees it as just individuals so it's it's hard to really put your finger on it but if you really take that for what it could mean you see how insidious it is is it almost it almost like removes any culpability for society at large or the culmination of projects or economic realities such as you know colonialism Chattel slavery, or like long standing projects of restructuring that could be culpable at all for, you know, systemic wide problems. So it's all individual critiques with neoliberalism and the culture it produces.
1: That quote, I think, even more so than just it highlighting that, you know, there's no greater structure than just. Individuals. The quote also is a way. It's kind of a cop out. It's a way to say that there is no other collective body, governing body, whatever the case may be, that is responsible for your social well being. Therefore, there is no need to invest in your overall well being, your brother's overall overall well being, or society's overall well being. Right? Because there is no society. And therefore, if there's only individuals, then it's you are individually responsible um, for your own successes and failures. Going back to the previous point we made, you know, if you're poor, it's because you didn't work hard enough or you're lazy and has nothing to do with the societal factors that have actually gotten you to where you're at and, and perhaps uh, would have in the past also alleviated some of the burden of what you would be going through.
0: Yeah, essentially, a lot of the cultural ethic of neoliberal capitalism looks at possibly systemic problems and individualizes them. Uh, like we've talked about previously the example of Ronald Reagan um, and his infamous racist stereotype of the black welfare queen and how that sort of um, gets people to think of poor people and, and almost like dehumanize them as if they want to remain poor just through laziness or idleness or that they would sit on welfare because they don't have a systemic or or structural disadvantage keeping them from supporting themselves in the first place. So I think like the cultural ethic of neoliberalism wants us to believe that structurally there's no blame for state policy or institutions like political parties that cling to a line or cling to a behavior or Set of uh, political imperatives, those have no bearing on society as a whole because there is no society as a whole when we look at the neoliberal conception of economics. So that brings us to the next section of like contradictions inherent in the neoliberal project. So, what in your own words do you think, do you guys think trickle down actually means? Because we've been sold trickle down economics in one way, but it may not actually work out in, in practice the way that, that it's been sold to us.
2: Yeah, the, the basic idea of trickle-down economics is that the people who are really responsible for success in this, this country are the ones who are at the top. They're the ones who made the investments. They're the ones who gave opportunities to the others. So the idea is that if you can maximize the amount of capital that someone might have being on that kind of upper side of, of society, then you're going to maximize opportunity for the lower side of society. I'd say the major problem is, is it's hard to find evidence that really supports that that notion. You can go through American history and you can I mean you can debate for like a million hours about it on the internet, mm-hmm. but you're <laughs> you're going to you're going to have a hard time really really proving some sort of uh of real correlation between uh low taxes on the on the rich uh, on the capitalist class. And success on the lower classes, especially when you look at the fact that a lot of times when we say make America great again, we're usually probably talking about a time when taxes were actually pretty high on the, uh, the upper class.
1: Right. Because of that, there was far more money for social spending. Yeah, I mean, I think trickle down economics is pretty much sold to us, at least in my opinion, is this way, you know. Rich people are the investment class. They're the reason why we have jobs, right? They're the job creator class. The less they have to pay in taxes, the more extra capital they will have that will sort of trickle down to the rest of us. It'll free up capital that will in turn trickle down and be invested in us, whether it's in higher paying jobs or just overall more investment in quote unquote society. You know, them investing in private transit systems or what you know whatever the case may be i mean there's a variety of ways in which it's been sold but how do we actually see it in practice i mean in practice it's the more money they have via tax cuts the more money they Hored. hoard yeah. or reinvest in you know various hedge funds or financial institutions or financial groupings that pretty much just circulate their money around and make money off of its cir- circulation or they make money off of the actual interest on it, as opposed to, you know, if they were taxed at a more progressive rate, uh, they would be kind of forced to spend it, or whatever they didn't spend would be then, or forced to invest it in the economy. Otherwise, whatever else they didn't have would be then taken in taxes and then put into more extensive social programs, social welfare programs.
2: And we're not saying either that the quality of life has decreased because of, like, neoliberal policies. But what we're saying is that it seems to be increasing for one specific class of society, the upper class, a lot faster than it increases for the other classes.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this is not, like, a, a musing or an ideology. Like, this is statistically relevant. You know, when we see since the 70s, like, union membership decline and then the corporate share of profit going more and more to the 1% and it's t- tapering off for the rest of us, I mean, there are graphs and stuff on EPI.org that you can look at and then see this information in real time. This is not just some ideology that we're putting forth. This is statistically relevant. I
1: mean, the reality is neoliberalism has made the rich richer than they've ever been in the entire existence of humankind. And at the same time that they have acquired this much wealth, the rest of us, the bottom 99 percent, have stagnated or declined um and because of the stagnation you know it's really been a testament to the fact that this extra money that they have uh is not actually in turn being invested in the rest of us it's not trickling down for the rest of us and i think that's why you really see this highlighted when anytime there's a new you know uh, economic report that says the economy is doing better than ever and pretty much Every working American has not really seen any real material effect in their lives at all. I think that's a large way in which neoliberalism as a whole sort of operates and has operated uh, long term now that we have the data to sort of look at that and, you know, realize what it is for what it is.
0: Yeah. So with the the idea of trickle down and how it's sold to us, you know, it's really not ideology to say that it's not working as it was sold to us. So. You can look at economic data, which we'll um we'll put in the show notes and we'll give that information to you or give you access to that information so you can see what we're talking about. But you know, also neoliberalism as it exacerbates a lot of these things like austerity and hyper financialization of markets, changing trade policies or deregulating trade with things like NAFTA or different trade policies, we're sold trickle down as this ideology um, for the financial class or the investor class, the entrepreneur class to use that extra money to make jobs or create jobs for for the uh, rest of society. We're sold this idea, but in practice, as we discussed, it doesn't necessarily equate to real, you know, economic justice or distribution um, for people who need it the most. Um and we'll we'll post information with the show notes um to give you access to these graphs and things like that. Like there are some great charts on epi.org that show the wage stagnation and the share of corporate profits um going more and more to the uh one percent over the past fifty or sixty years. So we'll share that information with you. But another thing that we wanna highlight is the deregulation not only of trade, but different maybe local laws or policies within local markets. Something I can think of in in U.S. history would be the 2008 financial collapse. So as it relates to this discussion, what do you guys think caused what a lot of people would call the 2008 housing bubble or financial crisis? What do you think in, in regards to neoliberalism is responsible for this type of phenomena?
1: I mean, in short, I would say a lot of it has to do, of course, with like deregulation. Right. But one thing I really want to want to make a point here throughout this entire discussion, we and as we continue this discussion, we refer to neoliberalism as the neoliberal project. Right. And I want to be clear on that because that's exactly what it is. Right. It's it's a political project. It's not one based in any like sound economics. Right. It never was. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because 2008 is a testament to that. 2008 was neoliberalism doing exactly what it intended to do. Hyper deregulation, the hyper financialization of global markets, the you know exploding of various economic bubbles around the world that send shockwaves into the entire system, effectively collapsing it and then where does the public sector you know show its its head where does the government investment come out of the woodwork to invest in this supposed society that didn't exist right it takes all of its resources and all of its capital and the public sector pumps it into saving the very financial institutions that brought the entire system down and effectively obliterated the workforce and ended a good majority of the you know world stages you know job opportunities and their economic uh, vitality and in turn the system rebounded it went back to exactly what it was doing before and it's why we were just talking that previous point we now have where we're constantly hearing about the economic system the economy doing very well while millions of workers in the US for instance are kind of like working well for whom right and i think that's really highlights what we keep saying and reinforcing when we say the neoliberal project because it ultimately was a political project to convince the american people as well as the global community to kind of develop a washington consensus that is that hyper deregulation hyper financialization and the cutting of social programs will ultimately lead to more money, more job creation, more economic opportunity and vitality for the majority, when in fact it's really an inverse of social spending, where all of the money that was previously expended on public expenditures is shifted to the top, the bailouts are for the people at the top, and pretty much the rest of us get nada. So I'm just quoting a passage here in which David Harvey states, quote, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States and, armed with the geniality and personal charisma, set the U.S. on course to revitalize the, its economy by supporting Volcker, who was head of the Federal Reserve at the time, moves at the Fed in adding his own particular blend of policies to curb the power of labor, deregulate industry, agriculture, and resource extraction, and liberate the powers of finance both internally and on the world stage. From these several epicenters, revolutionary impulses seemingly spread and reverberated to remake the world around us in a totally different image. So based on this passage, what are some things we immediately can take away or notice about this characterization of neoliberal capitalism and what about neoliberalism makes it so revolutionary?
2: I'm thinking about kind of like the expansion of... of the market pretty much in every feasible part of our life. Mm -hmm. That doesn't just include like global markets, but also like politically charging words like uh, freedom Mm -hmm. or uh, deregulation. Mm -hmm. Everyone's favorite or uh, my favorite is choice Mm -hmm. and turning those kind of like into political buzzwords Mm -hmm. and then applying them to everything, whether it's education, art, or even things like healthcare, Mm -hmm. Uh, like the choice word. That's always what you see in healthcare.
1: So it kind of sounds like well no it kind of sounds like what you're saying is like essentially an aspect of neoliberalism is that it kind of infect it literally infects pretty much all avenues of society yeah. whether like it's a total deregulation of pretty much all aspects of society and the infiltration of the market as well into all aspects of society whether it's school, healthcare, yeah, and so on and, and even the language in which we go about discussing those things are sort of rebranded and co-opted with market language so that really no matter which way you spin it you're getting some sort of privatized version of some something that otherwise wouldn't have been under a more Keynesian model
2: yeah absolutely and i think too like in addition to being like a whole new mindset i think when it really gets to his advanced stages when we start saying things like too big to fail mm-hmm because we've, we've kind of left the whole personal freedoms part mm-hmm. and gone into a more corporate welfare type of right. thinking, mm-hmm. which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later.
0: Yeah. Right. I think um, one of the most important characteristics that we've sort of already touched on, but just to underscore it a little bit more, um, because I think it's so important, is capitalism is this idea that we talked about in previous episodes to be, uh, you know, uh, what is essentially free competition in the market. So you're limited only by the extent that your capital is unequal to another, you know, competing interest. And I think with neoliberalism, especially like what characterizes it is just the complete freeing up of like markets internationally. There is nothing that's out of bounds. There's nothing that's untouchable as long as you have the capital to compete, invest, you know, extract resources in a foreign area, things like that. I think that's one of the big characterizations or big takeaways um from the move from like Keynesian welfare state capitalism into a more neoliberal, more like third way sort of uh economics that we're seeing or we have seen we're currently in the midst of
1: Yeah, I think the international aspect is a huge one. It is definitely capitalism taken on to a global scale. Not to say that capitalism wasn't global beforehand. I mean, we certainly saw that it was, especially on the left, in in terms of how we discussed imperialism and, you know, the invasion or colonization of other countries with the intent to extract some some sort of wealth or um from that country or to open some market
0: over there. Or really just like, you know, create freedom, create like the US uh religious freedom, freedom from persecution, like when uh colonials left to or or rebelled from Great Britain things like that as well.
1: Yeah, well, I think too even in that it's like even in that language, you know, freedom or what have you, it was always the the real intent was always to instill or institute some sort of like market force. But I think the way that neoliberalism is different is that it's it's a complete like unification. I mean, although there could be disagreements or, you know, global competitions of sort is a total unification of a global market system, so that, say, when you know the market, sh- quote unquote, shuts down in the U.S., it turns on in Singapore. It turns on in the U.K. It's like a constant twenty-four-seven cycle of the economy, constantly going, constantly interacting with one another. So it really, it, it never shuts down. It never sleeps. But, on a global scale,
0: yeah, which I think has been monumentally impacted by of course, computer technology and and technological advancement in general, just as you know in the around the time of the industrial revolution that exacerbated a lot of uh, issues or inequalities that already existed, and that kind of brings us to the idea of how we should look at neoliberalism as sort of like a, a revolution in a sense when compared to the keynesian Um, economics of, uh, you know, welfare state capitalism.
1: Well, yeah, because I think that was like part of the initial question is like, what makes neoliberalism so revolutionary? And you could easily be like, okay, well, all these things you've previously listed, you know, hyper deregulation, the globalization of the market, all that stuff. Well, how is that, you know, in any way different than previous forms of capitalism? But I think one way that makes it so different is it's well the difference is more or the revolution is more taking place from the keynesian capitalist system where the keynesian capitalist system while still capitalist provided some sort of through progressive taxation some sort of general social safety net which neoliberal capitalism obliterates entirely or rather inverses so that the welfare state merely exists to pump money into and bail out and assist the market. And completely disassociate itself from the general public.
2: A lot of people think of Milton Friedman as like the the core kind of architect of the neoliberal mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, Him and von Hayek, who was Mm -hmm. his teacher, Chicago School, exactly. And they're they're quoted as saying that the only things they think should be done by the government are roads, courts, and the military. So when you're Mm -hmm. talking about a complete extreme
0: classical liberalism, this is what it is. Right, but even so, like in the in the U.S., there's a lot of confusion almost from just interpreting like our Constitution or things like that, you know, where the Founding Fathers set up where we're supposed to provide for the general welfare. To what degree do we interpret that? Like, it, what is the gen, general welfare? Is it just building roads or is it just providing military? I don't know that you can say in the U.S. specifically that general welfare should stop at just you know, building roads or, you know, for example. So it's really one of those things where, you know, how do we interpret these types we'll of things? Well, see, and
2: what's kind of interesting about that is is um, Thatcher actually had a, a talk with von Hayek, right? Uh, who's, I guess, if Milton Friedman is the father of, of neoliberalism, he'd be like the granddad. And uh, von Hayek actually proposed some things that were pretty similar to what Pinochet did to uh, Chile. And she actually turned them down on the, on the premise that she didn't think the people would actually consent to them. So, From that, we can kind of gather that to even get to complete neoliberalism, there needs to be almost like a military junta dictatorship involved.
1: (laughs) Well, von Hayek, I mean, yeah. And I mean, I think that could be interpreted like in a lot of different ways. But I mean, even von Hayek was an extreme avid supporter of the project in Chile under just an absolutely ruthless, brutal dictatorship of pretty much... Aust- austerity authoritarianism in in Chile, but yeah, Friedman um, himself
2: actually went down to Santiago shortly after Pinochet took power and tried to encourage him to stay on course with mm. his style of economics. Um, but it's kind of funny because later on when Friedman actually won the Nobel Prize, people had a lot of questions for him. he actually kind of came out defensively saying, no no, 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 I, I would never was an advisor there. I never advocated for what happened in, in Chile, mm-hmm. but really when you look at it, I mean it was it was all the chicago boys all the chicago school that mm-hmm. that that were yeah. the architects it was, it was of, it, them boys. of the whole thing <laughs>
0: prior to this time like in the 1980s um you didn't really see uh neoliberalism um being tossed around by the general public
1: i, I don't even think that von hayek and all of them would have considered themselves neoliberals it, it's Neoliberalism, honestly, is like Monday morning football looking back at it. You know, you're, it's
0: kind of like what came out as an aftermath to describe it. Looking right, out. pretty much. And, and I think when you get um, around the time that Pinochet comes to power, you start to see in the, in the public and in the media this, well, market critics specifically start tossing this term around neoliberal as sort of a derogatory term is when you start to see it come out that way.
1: Well, I mean, think thing about this too, and, and we allude to it in the intro, is Pinochet and the Chicago School was the beginning, the sort of the, the lab rat, the test for the neoliberal project, the Chicago School-style economics. And ultimately, they believed it to be a success, right? Because Reagan and Thatcher, who... Largely, their system you know came to power after what was going on in Chile had already sort of taken place or had begun to take place overall, you know, regardless of what they may have said here that this way or the other, or the way scholars may have looked back at it, they ultimately felt that what they were doing was a successful project. They believed in the project. it was a very, very ideological project, which is um, you
2: know even on its own. I can see why. We might think it was beneficial from U.S. interest standpoints, but when it even comes to Chile, I was actually reading about it today. Great documentary by Naomi Klein that uh, they were discussing the revolution in Chile and uh, the inflation rates after they instituted all the austerity policies. I'd Actually, about three hundred and seventy-five percent per year. So even when you're just talking about neoliberal policies, they're they're not like directly effective. Like they don't just happen to just make the economy soar. Like maybe sure. Hmm. We've seen our GDP soar under neoliberal policies, but it doesn't just happen
0: overnight. <laughs> just to bring it back home and make sure that everyone understands. When we talked about in our intro with Margaret Thatcher's quote, there's no society, there are only men, women, and families. That's That really encapsulates like what the neoliberal project is. So uh, austerity is, um, for those who may not be familiar is when a government or a body takes uh, or makes cuts to, like, welfare spending or subsidies for the public uh, good or public welfare, like... Education, any kind of social program. Any any social program, they'd make cuts on it, uh, much like what is happening in the U.S. today, making cuts on social programs, you know, rather than than looking at any type of structural problem that might be there, just taking um, those social endowments... And just completely eviscerating them, which is in line with that thought, you know, there there is no society. We're not working together. But, it, but individuals. It, it
1: does that, too, with the intent to free up more capital to spend and, quote unquote, invest in the economy, whatever that means, which largely is taking wealth from the public and dumping it into some kind of subsidy tax break, whatever you want to call it, for the One percent, the capitalist class, whatever you want to call them, the business class, because previously under more Keynesian economic models or any social welfare program in general is typically funded through some kind of progressive taxation. So the elimination of those progressive taxations in order to defund those social safety nets and thus free up more capital for private investment and so on That's the essential goal of or program of austerity, which neoliberalism in itself heightens dramatically, Uh, just to kind of bring that back in to where we were going, to once again reemphasize that neoliberalism is ultimately the inverse of the Keynesian or New Deal kind of welfare state, and that it's inverting who it benefits, as opposed to using... um, you know government expenditure or rather tax expenditure public infrastructure to invest in the public it goes to private econ or private markets private dollars private firms with the intent to generate job growth or stimulate the economy in some way and we'll get into that a little bit later too as we discuss how that sort of turns out long term so The next point that Harvey brings up in the introduction, he says, quote, The process of neoliberalization has, however, entailed much creative destruction, not only of prior institutional frameworks and powers, even challenging traditional forms of state sovereignty, but also of divisions of labor, social relations, welfare provisions, technological mixes, ways of life and thought, reproductive activities, attachments to the land, and habits of the heart. So with that said, what is creative destruction
0: and what are some examples we can think of? On the way here, we were talking about the recent GM plant closures and how, um, you know, GM noted that uh, they're getting away from producing sedans and they're moving more towards automation. And that was their rationale behind getting rid of like over, I think, like around 14,000 jobs or something like that. Now, I guess that Kind of goes in line with creative destruction because ultimately they're destroying all these jobs, but they're not going to see any, any real consequences for it because they're getting, they've been recipient to incredible amounts of uh, government subsidy and bailout. And um, really what they're doing is just cutting costs and destroying the reality for a lot of other people. They're, they're harming other people for the sake of their profit
1: right well and i think too it's it's creatively i mean they're they're taking a a set of jobs um or market infrastructure rather and destroying them with the intent to free up capital to invest elsewhere i mean another perfect example of creative destruction would be literally nafta you know the north american free trade agreement that was signed by clinton back in the 90s where it essentially allowed for the total obliteration of all kinds of manufacturing within the United States um, and not, not the elimination of manufacturing for that company, of course, but the elimination of manufacturing tied to that particular geography that could otherwise be creatively reappropriated to another location, another country who didn't have the strict labor laws who could get away with Hiring, you know, younger people, and therefore not have nearly the social benefits or the working conditions could be worse. That they could essentially, you know, bump out more of more product, um, hire people for less money, and ultimately free up more capital and produce more of whatever it was that they intended to or that the con- company produced in order to you know, generate a greater profit. Um, The the ultimate goal of all of this creative destruction is to creatively reappropriate assets with the intent to generate higher profit long-term. I guess with that, how is this
0: concept relevant to modern capitalism or neoliberalism? It's relevant to neoliberalism because you, with neoliberalism, the advent of it, you sort of get into these hyper-international finance capitalism or and, and also transnational corporations and just how they have really been given the liberty to go and and insert themselves into any sort of economic situation that they can compete in and i think that is relevant absolutely to you know modern capitalism and how our economy in the US works how we gain a lot of the wealth that we have and why we are considered one of the wealthiest countries in the world
2: Mm -hmm. i think capitalism like by its very nature is constantly expanding and it has a need to keep expanding right and i think at some
1: point and reinventing itself right yeah
2: absolutely And i I think at some point and whether it was 30 years ago 40 years ago 70 years ago it's approaching its growth capacity and uh essentially out of necessity you have to find new places to increase that growth and that could be other countries that could be social programs Um, That could even be just whole new parts of the economy, like, for example, like the internet.
1: Or, yeah, avenues we haven't even thought of yet.
2: right. So I think the the neoliberal mindset is just always looking for that new market. And I think it's not really, you know, it's almost a market necessity that we move into other countries like Argentina or Chile, Brazil, Mm -hmm. Granada, Iran, Mm -hmm. any of these countries where we impose uh, austerity programs or we... We take out big loans or we overthrow their government. Or, yeah, or just seek yeah.
1: to expand markets and in doing so, completely reorganize or, and or obliterate their entire social infrastructure or government infrastructure, whatever. And it's, it's almost become like methodical. You know, it, it starts
2: with loans. Mm-hmm. And when someone's not friendly to taking loans, suddenly the government, our government, the mm-hmm. U.S. government, is support, supporting their, uh, their adversary. Mm-hmm. And then once their adversary takes over all the money starts flowing again. Mm-hmm. They're back to taking loans. They're back to uh, getting rid of social welfare programs. and uh, Or and just
1: a- the interest in markets that we don't have access to, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. like, there's a variety of ways in which I think neoliberal actors or actors on behalf of neoliberal projects or institutions, such as, like, the U.S. government, for instance, which its main goal is protecting the interest of the private elite, you know, who are sort of financial beneficiaries of this neoliberal project. So, you know, you take a case study like Venezuela, a country that they've wanted access to for oil reserves and what have you for however many years, they can use various means, whether it's using allies in the Middle East to flood the entire global market with excess of oil reserves, which devalues their major economic mode that they can then use to exploit the government's weaknesses And what would likely happen if a right-wing neoliberal so-and-so took over in Venezuela, which will probably inevitably happen within the next few years? Well, then they'll free up capital, they'll forgive debts, they'll let loose of sanctions, and we'll be talking about what great economic prosperity has been brought onto Venezuela since the demise of the left or whatever.
0: Right. I think um, another good example would be, I don't know if we touched on it already, but Uh, U.S. involvement in Saudi Arabia and, and our um, continued presence over there really in a large part kind of just constitutes a resource security. And I think, I think that's like the destruction of, of one element of society, like literally invading the Mm -hmm. Middle East Mm -hmm. and setting up all this proxy, you know, stuff there so that we can literally have a market right to sell weapons or have mm-hmm. weapon contracting.
1: Yeah. But I mean, even, even to like, not even to get, you know, so totally, you know, out there with various examples. I think if there was one thing to bring home about creative destruction, it's in kind of piecing all of this sort of stuff together and why it's so instrumental, um, to, the neoliberal capitalist project is that capitalism, as we were talking about earlier, you know, it's constantly seeking to reinvent, rebrand and exist in new ways that we haven't thought of before. Anytime you think you've put a barrier in front of it, it completely obliterates it in totality and reinvents itself and reestablishes itself somewhere else. Now, who does that ultimately affect negatively? Obviously the workers, obviously the working class of whatever country that you know those barriers are being smashed in, um, or even if those barriers are being put up there, and ultimately, what um, needs to be understood though is that no matter what happens, no matter what sector of the economy is creatively destroyed or is just destroyed in general, the capitalist machine will find a way to creatively reinvent that element elsewhere to continue to maximize profits. That's the whole reason that it reinstitutes this creative destruction or this mode of creative destruction, because ultimately the destruction of one element of society or the market just leads to the creation of new markets elsewhere.
0: Right. I think, I don't know if you you guys recall, what over the weekend we were, I think we went out to lunch, we were talking about... we were talking about marketing, and re- and we talked about just now how capitalism or our market capitalism has to rebrand itself every so often with this neoliberal project or, you know, reintroduce itself in different ways. And we were talking about how how marketing and branding is such an important language of capitalism, of disseminating it and indoctrinating, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, basically... Neoliberalism is constantly
1: seeking to reorganize and restructure itself, and in a market way that that largely takes the form of creative destruction, which, once again, you know, destruction of one element of society or the market really just leads to the creation of new markets elsewhere. So, moving on um, from a strictly market standpoint, what is neoliberalism in theory? versus in practice, and how does this differ from previous variations of capitalism or market logic? So if I may, I would like to hit the first riff on this one. Um, And that's that basically the neoliberal state is consistently seeking out internal reorganizations and new institutional arrangements that improve its competitive agency or position as an entity in the global market. So in order to do this, you know, as we've kind of stated previously, pretty much the social programs established by social democracy or Keynesian capitalism, New Deal capitalism, whatever you want to call it, are done away with to free up more capital for private investment, uh, making it largely the individual's responsibility for their successes and failures in society, which pretty much ignores any social barriers that may have previously existed that would prevent an individual from competing evenly with other actors within their own society or on the global stage, whatever the
0: case may be. Right. So that's in, That's what neoliberalism is in theory. In practice, trickle-down economics was, I think, the biggest example or the biggest contradiction to point out. That was a big push by Reagan. Um, and I think something that he's most w- well-known for is that idea that the wealth will trickle down when we give these allowances to the the wealthiest in our society. But From the 1970s until now, what we see is just completely stagnant wage growth while production and wealth generation is at an all-time high. You can see how in the 1970s, um, the distribution of of wealth became more unequal at at this point in time, and it's just continued to skyrocket from the 1970s until today.
2: Yeah, I think like the, the core thesis, as you guys kind of hit on a whole bunch was that it's pretty much just like an extreme version of like classical liberalism in theory. But as we've kind of discussed in practice, it it never turns out that way.
1: If if anything, if anything, it is, it is really just classical liberalism in theory, but it's people who actually like stuck to their guns instead of like, you know?
2: Yeah. You know. In like, uh, I, I was watching a video from Noam Chomsky and he kind of hit like the, probably the three biggest I could think of one. If, if we were, all opposed to a government intervention, then how can we explain bailing out all the companies in 2008, whether it's the financial sector or if it's uh, the car companies? The other one he really hit on, too, was the government pouring money into public projects that would later become products. Like, for example, every component that's inside of an iPhone is probably something, well, it was something that was developed in a government project. Same for the internet. But companies but never ashamed to use those things when, they, when it comes to making a profit.
1: Yeah, or even like we always talk about how if you take space technology, you're talking about Elon Musk who pretty much by every like, I don't know, atheist dude bro, science major, you know, who just discovered Sam Harris like for the first time ever, who thinks Elon Musk is like a literal god or whatever is like, oh my God, today Elon Musk tweeted that he's going to, invent a hyper warp drive to beam people to Mars. And it's like, he said that that's great, but he wouldn't ever fucking do that. Right. Because him to even, I mean, what has he actually done a whole lot of like, honestly, Jack shit in terms of space and compared to what, you know, NASA did in the past. Why? Because the majority of the infrastructure that is even allowed for a private sector to exist in the space industry is because the public sector took on all the risk back in the, you know, sixties and seventies. And and even before that, when it obviously like started as an idea, but you know what you were saying with like the whole, like Chomsky talking about like, well, if we really didn't believe in government, you know, like we wouldn't have had the bailout. Actually. I mean, it's almost like neoliberalism. It kind of gets to say that it's still not in favor of the government because the government isn't doing society any good it's doing them good right and that's why i think like too big to fail capital for instance like what happened in the 2008 financial crisis it uses the state to institute a welfare-esque bailout program for its own negligence that otherwise would not be extended to an individual member of society even though you know corporations i guess now are considered people too under you know neoliberalism and and shit but like it really is just taking previous social welfare programs and reappropriating them to be used for the sole purpose of keeping the market alive and pumping it full of, you know, whatever is necessary so that that heart monitor keeps going. It's literally like, what do they call it? They call it like zombie capitalism.
0: I'm wondering what you guys think about this, but critics on the right often say that is not real free market capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what's supposed to happen in a free market. Mm-hmm. The government isn't supposed to bail those those companies out. They're just supposed right. to fail. But if they're so embedded in our economic infrastructure to be called too big to fail, then is that a valid criticism? Is it an invalid criticism? And- I mean,
1: I mean, the thing is, though, they say, oh, it's not real capitalism. Well, yeah, of course not, because real capitalism would have been dead in the fucking dirt like years ago because it keeps fucking crashing and obliterating itself over and over and over again because ultimately you have to say like that what do they always say you know the the market is always in competition competition for what competition for total dominance total market control and what happens when that inevitably happens because it always happens it always inevitably happens the more you deregulate and the more and more that the government keeps its hands off what happens it completely sends itself into a greedy whirlwind of monopoly and what have you until it i mean that's probably not the best way of wording it but it sends itself into a whirlwind of monopoly and then completely obliterates itself from the inside it's the snake eating the tail right just constantly further and further and further sucking down as much as it can until it's brain dead
2: yeah i think too the only time we really truly have implemented neoliberalism is in other countries well no 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 <laughs> no 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 no, no,
1: no, no. <laughs> i don't want to say that i don't want to say that because we very no, I much mean, i mean the core i know i know theory. what you're saying i know what yeah. you're saying yeah no neoliberalism i think the reason why i was we were kind of talking about earlier and it might be confusing for the listener and i hope it you know it's not too confusing but neoliberalism it, when we were talking about sort of how it's that monday morning football type thing like we're looking back at a previous set of views and theories and all that, and we're calling them, lumping them together, or the Chicago School together as neoliberalism, the neoliberal project. Neoliberalism is all these things, right? In theory, fucking whatever. I mean, in theory, any way it's been put into practice, this is what it tends to do. Now, in terms of these classical liberal free market, yada yada bullshit, whatever, yeah, the only place that's ever been implemented is in colonies, in, in straight up Colonies in Puerto Rico, right now, okay, in Guatemala, in the majority of Latin American countries that have acted as proxies for the United States uh in Africa, for all the European countries, whether it's the Congo, whether it's Cameroon, you name it, they're all sort of free market little paradises all obliterating each other for the total benefit and control of the mother country essentially
2: even even Iraq's an example of that. I didn't actually know this till today. We actually uh, instituted a flat tax. The only place we've ever done that, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that either. (laughs) Isn't
2: that weird that we went over there, that was one of the first things that we asked them to do to help recover their economy. Some of the other interesting things I read on that one too, they made it so that foreign companies were allowed to own 100% of Iraqi assets outside of the natural resource sector. Mm. So they completely, completely liberalized that market. Um, The other thing too was investors could actually take 100% of their profits outside of the country. Mm-hmm. So that's it's really interesting because if you <laughs> I don't think I don't think anybody would let, let that happen in the US, mm-hmm. you know. I don't think we would ever let companies invest heavily mm-hmm. and then let all that that capital flee the country.
1: Well, I don't know about that. But uh, you know, we uh, uh that's a discussion for another time though. But what you were just saying though, like with Iraq, that's a perfect example of again, neoliberalism in practice, right? Because If they can't get you through the IMF or the World Bank or some other, like, third-party institution, then they just brutalize you into submission, and then what happens after they've completely obliterated you? Well, the reason everything's in disrepair is because your previous leader, whatever, he was a bad guy, so here's some freedom, a.k.a. Mm. here's our state-sponsored dictatorship, but by freedom... Here's our freedom to extract literally every avenue or asset that you possibly have and divvy it up to every single foreign investor that is attached to either us or some transnational or someone that has a stake in an investment in the neoliberal imperial project because that is also a real thing. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at American foreign
2: policy. It's super easy to get in
1: and think that we're doing it for the benefit
2: of our government. Mm. A lot of people, when we went to Iraq, were thinking in terms of, like, oil. Mm. But in reality, it's, it's not so much for government, it's for uh, the ownership class. Right, know? exactly. It's a new Absolutely. market for the ownership class. Absolutely. And even if, even if it's not some sort of conspiracy, it's not like there's, like, a group of these people that are sitting in a room doing it, but those people approve of the conditions, and so those conditions replicate themselves over and over again. And that's why every, every decade there's three different countries that we... Uh, either overthrow or give a massive loan to
1: you heard that people it's not the illuminati it's not george soros it's not the jews it's fucking capitalism it's
0: not a conspiracy there's no you know they're not meeting in a room with special hats you know uh, with a grand table it's 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 just regular people business owners um business yeah business class corporations financial executives these people are basically just you know manufacturing the consent by you know not objecting at all to what is going on
2: yeah without 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 expanding in that direction i think um we would see stagnation and i've seen people talk about the 70s as being that kind of final last gasp a breath Mm -hmm. that capitalism had Mm -hmm. until it was kind of reinvigorated by the neoliberal project you mean
1: like Keynesian capitalism yeah like that was the the last the tail end
2: stagnated because we we had we had we had pretty much capped out what we mm. could do in our own market a lot of people like to blame it on opec for example for the the crash right. in the 70s but i've seen other people speculate that it's kind of like the the very very borders of how far we could go off of like a liberal democracy without getting into this kind of neoliberal territory
1: mm-hmm. like expansionist yeah yeah eh, i could see no, that no, argument. no i, got, no, 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 I feel no, you not I
2: feel- not in like a, a like an imperial way i'm no, saying that like eventually at some point when does your economy stop growing, mm-hmm. or when does it stop growing at the rate you need? No, it to? I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah, that's interesting, but could be debated further. But we'll we'll save that for later. Um, okay. Um, so, quoting again from David Harvey in his work, "A Brief History of Neoliberalism," he states, "quote." In the event of a conflict, neoliberal states typically favor the integrity of the financial system and the solvency of financial institutions over the well-being of the population or environmental quality. So, this section focuses a lot on the use of state power to discipline economies, domestic and foreign, to be subservient to the major financial sectors on the global stage. How is this similar, different, or both in regards to imperial projects or imperial
0: capitalism of old. So we were talking earlier about colonialism mm-hmm. and it's it's just I think there's a term that's been used in media and discourse called neocolonialism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think neo just fits right in into the mold with mm-hmm. with neoliberal state mm-hmm. new colonialism or
1: even I would say like I think it's I think it's attributed to David Harvey I could be wrong but he says the new imperialism is you know often used instead of direct militaristic imperialism under neoliberalism as we understand it today in which larger neoliberal economies will use global avenues of economic restructuring through like the world bank imf and so on um, which allow predominantly western nation states to extract large sums of wealth from poor nations which we were kind of talking about earlier who are largely looking to pay off debts owed to a Maybe a former colonizer nation could be a country who's bought the debt of or reappropriating the debt of a former colony from the, the, quote, mother country. I hope that doesn't get me in any trouble. I just think forms of economic restructuring in this way globally include austerity measures that we discussed earlier that gut already meager social programs and so on and so forth. But that's sort of this, this idea of this new imperialism or this kind of neoliberal imperialism and where there isn't always direct state conflict, although there is, but they'll often use means of global financial networks and institutions to sort of instrument their bidding. I'm going to slightly disagree
2: because uh, mm. it's not just the third world anymore. I mean, if you look back at at Greece, for example. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, rejecting that IMF loan. Mm. And look how that turned out for mm. them, you know? it's it's a it's a, a lose lose situation when you're on the other end of that loan.
1: Well, I think with Greece though, it was them refusing to take a bailout package yeah, from yeah. the EU yeah, you're right. which yeah. was orchestrated largely by Germany who pretty much runs the EU which was yeah, we or you pay back your debt via extreme austerity measures from a country that was already implementing austerity yeah. measures to pay back its its debts which were from the 2008 financial collapse but unlike you know the major european players like germany great britain and all that that were given sort of the opportunity for more recovery greece was sort of the lab rat really of and with the intent to sort of show the global community and and i think show other european union member states what happens when you refuse to abide by the logic of the neoliberal global market specifically within europe you know it it, it disciplined i think some of the west and i think that's why you've seen a lot of anti eu backlash coming
0: from both the populist right and left throughout europe one interesting thing is how all of these uh countries and these different nationalities they're Finances are like interconnected. There's a deep, deep web of relationships in the market, which is you know very characteristic of neoliberalism, how everything becomes a commodity, everything is commodified so um that is something that stands out to me. how you know we go from well, maybe it wasn't necessarily unlike this in the past with um you know keynesian economics or or New deal uh, capitalism. But you're seeing it more and more where, you know, solvency becomes so important uh, to, you know, uh, on the path to, you know, what is considered like market sovereignty. So um, that is a that is interesting and important thing to take away is this deep interconnected financial web that ties all of these nations together. It's no longer just this isolationism, this like small government. It's no longer about that. Everything Mm. is now connected.
1: Right. The collapse, just as the the growth of one market in one country may affect the growth of a market in the other, the inverse is true as well. Because ultimately, you know, you're talking about this interconnectedness and we're just talking about Greece and austerity and whatnot being imposed on a global stage. It obviously wasn't Greece's fault. You know, it wasn't the Greek people's fault for what happened. It was the banking crisis that originated in the united states right that reverberated and spread throughout the entire global marketplace essentially it wasn't greece's fault however if you recall if you can rewind i don't know where you all were politically back when but if you can recall back to around i think it was like 2011 2010 2011 maybe 2012 before there was any talk of a deal uh, with greece in terms of their um their you know debt crisis and whatnot you had like the fox news is and even cnn and all that stuff were talking about how like basically the reason greece was having such a massive debt crisis was because they had you know super long vacations and you know strong unions and that it had nothing to do with the fact that like basically their right-wing government prior had privatized their entire like social safety net and threw it in with Goldman Sachs and then when it collapsed obviously like their entire thing went to shit yeah Um,
2: earlier I was gonna say I'm like you might want to be careful when you say you're not going to blame the Greek people because a lot of people are gonna say well they they took that welfare right 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 it's their fault well no that's
1: precisely why I don't because obviously it had nothing to do with them or that their social programs and everything to do with the 2008 banking crisis which you know could have affected any other europe and and did honestly let's let's be real you know like there are some countries too that like the eu just hasn't gotten to yet or the eu you know merkel and all of them haven't had the opportunity to do the same thing to yet spain is an example well, yeah. portugal is an example like,
2: it's also it depends too greece is in a situation where they've refinanced their current right, debt right. a few times mm-hmm. so we don't know who's right. going to be
1: the next person to be right refinancing their debt essentially we're talking about how or how how state power interacts with markets globally and how that's different under neoliberalism in the past quite frankly, there are a lot of similarities. Like oh, yeah, there's there's, there's a ton of similarities. Um, but I think now it's so hyper-financialized that you have more and more examples of, like, Greece, right, and Puerto Rico, where countries are being brutalized largely by financial institutions. And I don't want to say there's less need to, like, brutalize them militarily because that's how that also too is happening all over the world but the way things are panning out on a on a global stage is it's almost like not only are they using financial means but they're sort of making a show of it to to kind of show you like this is what will happen to you you know right but there's there's a wealth of relevant examples today there's also Examples of this happening in the nineties, South Africa, for instance, right? Post apartheid South Africa, where essentially the US and its allies, US, Israel, all of them said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you can you can have your your politics. The ANC can you can have your your politics, you can have your elections, but the economy is still going to be ran by the white ruling class, basically, the white apartheid ruling class, and any and all objections to that will result in essentially you know military intervention and on top of that they require the ANC I don't remember the exact intricacies of it but it's essentially they require South Africa or the ANC or something like that to pay like debt owed to the former apartheid regime or whatever yeah
0: yeah well more recently I think we've all seen in the news how south africa is basically with the new go- government there that is a uh, that has been came to be
1: well it's still the anc yeah. but new new leadership yeah. yeah
0: new leadership basically you're having like a reappropriation of like farmland which mm-hmm. which i think is some something that's um mm-hmm. been a big topic in in recent news white genocide and just the outcry yeah basically <laughs> white genocide and just the outcry of you know how is this fair now that you've basically sectioned off our whole society and made it into a settler colonial state and extracted everything you could out of it. But now it's suddenly unfair that when uh, those people who were oppressed for so long come to power that they might, you know, reappropriate your land. And
2: that was actually, that was one of Marx's biggest protests against capitalism in the first place was that, sure, it's all fine and dandy if everybody can own stuff, but how do we determine who initially owns things? What happens when you've entered a world where everything is Already owned, you know how do you how do you ever work up to catch up? Same, then I think South Africa's kind of stuck in that dilemma right now,
1: right? Well, I mean, also too, like first of all, the ANC and their leadership was not the people who advocated and were in favor of that initially. It was the South African Communist Party, but that that proposition of land reform of land redistribution was so popular amongst the masses and the ANC has been catching so much shit for being so fucking corrupt um and embedded with like literally the neoliberal like elite and order in that country for so long um that pretty much it was sort of like we will do this to gain like some sort of like popular support within the country and it worked um because it is largely popular because a lot of wealth in South Africa is tied to the land and you have former landowners whose like grandparents or those people who still own it today were like fucking ruthless monsters in apartheid South Africa. But yet even with the overturning of that entire government structure and social relations, the people are still there and they still own that wealth and they're still tied to it at the behest of the suffering, the continued suffering of the majority of black South Africans.
0: Right, and I mean a lot of people know of South Africa strictly because of apartheid and and Mandela and all that. But this this particular instance is not unique, you know. I mean, aside from the uh, elements of apartheid, there it's not a unique circumstance. Um, it's not. It's certainly not the only co- colony or sett- settler colonial state that has you know, ever existed.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, there's a wealth of examples. Um, but. I think that's the thing about neoliberalism is it's really about making a, a financial show of things. You know, it's really about this kind of economic brutalization of the majority of a variety of countries that are that find themselves financially subservient to the powers that be via it. They accepted the wrong deal and in this dealer no deal like market neoliberal bullshit that currently pans out on the global scale every day or what have you. Um, that's
2: all, well, two, to step back once, that's not just to say that it's all the IMF or the World Bank's fault for even getting involved. A lot of times the upper class in those countries is also in favor of taking out loans as well. I think David Harvey pointed that out in the book.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, they're, well, yeah, if, if the loan you know, benefits their private capital sustained existence, then obviously that's, they're going to be in favor of like i said going back to this kind of whole reiteration of i think what we've been going at like over and over and over again hammering in about this whole like neoliberalism thing is like neoliberalism in practice has no fucking beef at all with state intervention or other agent intervention into the market as long as it's to help them and maintain the rule of and the presence of Capital in society in all avenues of society, not just this aspect or that but in all avenues of society at the behest of, at the outright oppression, suppression, and
0: extraction from the majority of society globally. It's fine it's finance and private property propped up by the state mm-hmm. for the interests mm-hmm. of those ultimately who run the state. Or anyway. or
1: or, you know, even The finance can, through its own dealings, shady dealings, credit swaps, whatever, like in 2008, financially get itself up, you know, on its own through its own deregulated shady, you know, practices. And then when it all, you know, falls out from under itself, it just it doesn't matter. It it gets that injection of capital
0: that it needs to get right back to where it was. In that specific example with the housing crisis with, you know. Uh, what is it? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, you know, they were, sacks, yeah, all gi- of them, yeah. giving loans to people that, you know, ultimately couldn't ever repay them. Right. Um, and then that's where you have the bubble and mm-hmm. the crash.
2: Right. I don't know why Bernie Mac would do such a thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, f- wrapping this whole thing up, quote uh, from Harvey again, he says, quote, The anarchy of the market of competition and of unbridled individualism generates a situation that becomes increasingly ungovernable. It may even lead to a breakdown of all bonds of solidarity and a condition verging on social anarchy and nihilism. In the face of this, some degree of coercion appears necessary to restore order. The neoconservatives therefore emphasize militarization as an antidote to the chaos of individual interests. For this reason, they are far more likely to highlight threats real or imagined, both at home and abroad, to the integrity and stability of the nation. And so with that, what instances do we see of this playing out today? Well, the obvious answer is the immigration crisis, yeah. scare quotes yeah, yeah, around yeah. that. in quotes, <laughs> crisis, in quotes. Um, yeah, no, I think just Trump in general, right? The emergence of a sort of populist right that is like everything is out of control and it's disorganized and all of society has been obliterated and the reason that is is because of the left who's destroyed our social norms and our social order you know such as the family and all that stuff uh and conservative values uh the immigrants who are taking all of your jobs um and kicking you out of the the market uh, and making you you know worthless essentially in terms of what you own and your own material wealth you know, there's probably yeah, some something I thought about too is uh, security in general.
2: Uh, there's a whole market for security now that never existed. Well, even just think about like TSA for example, right. that hardly existed. That right. actually didn't exist pre nine eleven. Right. So then there's this whole other government industry, that's industry, complete with um, contracts that probably go to private mm-hmm. um, people. And They'll the same thing. Do. Same thing with you know just war in general. You know we've we've matched how many contractors make up. Um, the occupying force in Iraq is, is now more than the soldiers that we have. So that's a whole market on its own.
0: When I think of uh, the neoconservative response or answer to neoliberalism, I immediately think of uh, bootstrap theory and how, you know, if you're on, if you're falling in um, economic hard times, you know, the, the only answer or the, the only conceivable answer is that you should just get a different job That it's all your individual fault for the economic position that you've been presented with, you know, which completely ignores, you know, any type of material position that the person could be in. See, I think that's actually a really good point because you you
1: just touched on something that I think I did not go into enough detail on previously, which is you just said the neoconservative answer is sort of this like bootstrap theory. I think that's exactly right. And I think neoconservative theory is embedded with the establishment of neoliberalism. And that's where I think right populism comes in. Because then right populism says, no, 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 it's not that you haven't been pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's that you've been trying to and you've been working hard to do these things. But the reason you haven't made it is because of all these immigrants who have made it impossible for you to get a good, decent paying job. It's because of all these lazy people who don't want to work and want to just suck out you know, the money, all this money from the government. Uh, It's the left who's destroyed family values and made women, you know, to feel that they have, they should have too much independence. And therefore that's why you can't get a girlfriend or whatever shit that they say, you know, and so on and so on and so forth. But it fills a vacuum in society that for a lot of people is easy to latch on to because it makes them Not feel that they're to blame because they're not. You know, they're not to blame. But it's it's also, you know, obviously it's a scapegoating because, as I had stated in the intro, and I think is always tends to happen is that these right populists tend to be the best managers and financiers of capitalism, of of capitalism, and of even neoliberal capitalism because of the fact that they are so good at maintaining the status quo, maintaining order in a way that never addresses the true root cause of what has, you know, led to all this economic anxiety, social anxiety, which is capitalism itself and the, you know, inequalities that it produces inevitably.
0: Right. I think it is exactly to your point. It's basically the blind leading the blind in that regard. Mm-hmm. And that bootstripe theory is as much it is, as it is an answer or a response, it is so deeply embedded with the neoliberal project. It is, comprises a lot of how uh, reactionary forces resp- respond to claims of, you know, a ruling class or things like that. Anything that they can do to sort of downplay the idea that there is any, anything structural that's keeping you from getting, you know, solvency or the ability— uh, to be financially independent without, you know, taking out loans, without um, constantly renting and never being able to own, things like that. that, th- Those are the, the types of things that really just reinforce mm-hmm. what is considered, you know, bourgeois ideology.
1: Right. And not only that, too, like this neoconservative and right populism, one thing that they share is that they're sort of, especially like right populism, but right populism, neoconservatism, they can kind of Be the same in many ways they blend together they sort of are catering always to especially in american society like to a particular demographic which in american society is the white male right because then when there is a response to these same social anxieties in terms of like you know i can't find work or economically i'm stressed or whatever the case may be By other people, whether it's the left or communities of color, for instance, who have experienced this since the inception of this country. Because of that, there's a tendency for the left and those people who have experienced this historically to organize, right? To protest, to engage in some sort of action, civil disobedience, in which case the state comes in to crush that and to rear its ugly head. And I think it whips up the support of that sort of white male demographic because it then says, like, see, these people that were disciplining that were bashing their heads in on this you know on Capitol Hill or whatever for protesting or in you know New York or in Occupy Wall Street or whatever the case may be see they're the problem. These are the exact people we've been telling you about they're and look how organized they are as opposed to you know a left populism which would attempt to say like actually they're exhibiting the same you know social and market anxieties that have and so on and so forth.
0: what I think is actually funny is if we go back to the the david harvey quote in there he actually uses the term antidote to chaos which is a subtitle in uh you know jordan peterson's book 12 right. rules of la yeah <laughs> antidote to chaos right. and well if you know if you just clean yeah. your room it'll solve all of you yeah room. basically <laughs> and i think that's i don't mean to like downplay it or or take any uh, sense of magnitude away from it but i think in a lot of ways that's how the right tends to view things like this and that's what underpins and and precedes that neoconservative answer is that they they view it as a lack of order they view it as social degeneracy you know a lot of them see the lgbtq uh uh, community that way Um, they look at hookup culture that way they see a lot of those things as a lack of order
1: but yeah going off this notion of like chaos versus order Um, That you had that you were mentioning, I I think because of that, it's not a coincidence why you know neoliberalism today um, is seeing such a strong reaction from this sort of far right populist element. Although most of us would consider a lot of like neoliberalism, neoliberal politics to be far right, uh, the reality is they've largely been adopted by both what we understand is the conservative, the Republican conservative movement in the U S and the more liberal democratic institutions in the U S as well, making them essentially associate, you know, these, a lot of these chaos, well, I'm, I'm putting that in quotes, chaos, you know, or these sort of liberal social norms or various elements of society that they have issue with. They're associating that to a large degree also with the, the, sort of neoliberal politics of the liberal left, um, well what they believe to be a left in general.
2: Yeah, I have I really I I can't doubt that there's probably a large amount of conservatives who might actually listen to this anti corporate kind of sentiment and actually agree. You know, like we were talking about those right wing populists, a lot of those people aren't opposed to to protectionism or uh or uh kind of the more like anti classical liberal points of view. So I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I just think that ultimately that's what's led to a large part of this, this combat against this supposed chaos, in quotes, has led to this ultimate rise of a far-right populism that is distinctly targeting, you know, minority groups, the left, LGBTQ groups, and so on, because it sees their own Market anxieties, their own social anxieties that are to large part a product of a market that has completely all in a butt for years abandoned them and in turn are, you know, seeking this sort of scapegoating that leads down this path of highly reactionary, confrontational right wing politics um, that is both against the neoliberal project but is ultimately acting in large part as its best manager, both internally within the nation and on a global stage.
0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the Entry Level Left podcast. As always, be sure to check us out on Facebook and give us a like at facebook.com slash left. You can always find links to more information in our show notes or on Facebook. Feel free to reach out to us if you have questions, comments, topics, or anything you'd like us to discuss on our show. Until next time,